Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks for having me on, mate. Long time no speak. It's been a little while. It has, and, and much has happened in that time, and uh, we've, got, we've got a lot to go through, mate, but there's only one place for us to start, and, and that's this Ashes series. Three games in, one all and a draw, so many talking points. How have you found it so far? Uh, look, I've, I've just found it to be just very fluctuating. Like It's almost like sessions within sessions. So, for example, you know, there'll be times where England just play out of their skin, and then the Aussies will bounce back. So I think on reflection, taking obviously the events of uh, Sunday night uh, Melbourne time, um, I think 1-1 is probably a fair reflection of where both sides are at, to be honest. It's just been crazy, hasn't it? I mean, on sort of at the macro level, and, and we might get into sort of the, what happened in, in the third test, but at the macro level, um, it's been, you know, sort of the Steve Smith show and he's around, and then England's bowling um, struggling until they've brought in Archer. And he's been wreaking havoc on the Aussies. And our top order, mate, is just absolutely shocking. I mean, three tests in, and we can't get anyone to to stick around and help Steve Smith out. No one's averaging more than 20 or 30. Really soft dismissals. I don't think Warner looks like he's in the right mental state after everything um, that happened in South Africa. Uh, What's going on at the top order there? Look, I have been a big believer for this for a while that the infiltration of T20 cricket has um, largely had impact on players' techniques. Players just aren't sticking around for long periods of time being able to sort of graft out an innings. Um, You mentioned about David Warner. You talk about the mental fragility there. I mean, in one regard, he leads the IPL uh, It was a leading IPL run scorer and then did, of course, absolute chaos at the uh, one-day World Cup, whereas I I actually look at him logically, and if you look at his red ball form outside of Australia, he hasn't really done that much. I struggle to remember him scoring 100 in an Ashes test on uh, British soil. Um, I just think he's, his technique is suspect to the moving ball, and if you can get it sort of outside off stump and sort of tempt him, he just flashes at it. Uh, willy-nilly and is getting caught behind uh, too often for my liking. Yeah, mate, absolutely. I mean, really quickly, I was looking at the numbers earlier and I didn't realise how poor it was. So first test, he made two runs in the first innings and backed it up with eight runs in the second. So at least he made four times the total. So that, that's pretty good. In the second test, three runs in the first innings, backed it up with five runs. In the third test, he had a decent start with 61, but backed it up with a duck. Mate, that's that's not form that keeps you in the side, surely. Look, if it wasn't for his name and probably his reputation for his the fact he's got a batting average of forty at test level, I, I don't think he's worthy enough uh, to have a spot in the team, especially outside of Australia. Um, he just is the quintessential flat track bully, if you ask me. As I said, Stuart Broad's in his head at the moment. I mean, he's no mug. He's taken over four hundred test wickets, and he's just probing away at that off stump, just gets that bit of movement off the seam and just commits Davey to play on the front foot and it just keeps on happening time and time again where he just either gets bowled or he gets caught behind. And um, Look, he's, he's failed on multiple occasions uh, in the British Isles and I just don't think he'll... I don't think he'll be going to the next Ashes. So I think they're going to have to start to look to prepare for life after David Warner. And... Who's making way for Steve Smith, mate, when he's back? Because, to be honest, he, he is our rock. And we've sort of, 
not much, not much unearthed, but someone who's come in and done a great job is um, Lobashane, who you know is backing in for Smith, and I don't think you can take him out of the side now. Who's making way for Steve Smith? Is it Kawaja or is it Warner or is it someone else in your mind? Look, I've sort of done some uh, bit of a deep dive into uh, the sort of conundrum, as I figured that that would be one of the questions you ask. I mean, look, no Steve Smith now, Australia. We don't win that first test, and we probably lose that second test. I mean, he scored, he's the only, he's still leading, he's a leading run scorer. I think he scored 387 runs and he's played one less test than I think the nearest best, which I think is Rory Burns on about 325. I mean, he's just a freak. I mean, he's the best red ball batsman in the world. I mean, our listeners would probably say Coley. I mean, yeah, Coley's probably the best white ball batsman in the world, but I think in terms of red ball cricket, I mean, this is a guy who scored over 25 tonnes already, and considering he came in as a number eight uh, number eight batsman who bowled a bit of leg spin uh, nine years ago at Lords against Pakistan, um, I mean, he's, he's a war star, if you ask me. In regards to Lubbershane, um, yeah, he has to be picked, and I would I would play him at three. Reason being is I've looked at his county stats this year, and he's actually made 1,100 runs for uh, his county uh, side, Glamorgan, which includes 500s. He's been on fire in the UK. And it's no coincidence that having played against the Duke's ball on British soil, he's just better equipped to be able to deal with the moving ball and deal with English conditions. I mean, I think this is you know, a bigger part of the problem that less Aussies are going to play county cricket these days. And it's sort of showing that the ones who have had their county cricket exposure are better off for the experience and are better playing in an Ashes series. Now, to answer your question, who comes in for Smith? So clearly I'm of the view that Lobashane stays in the team. I'm arming and arming whether it's either Harris or Kawaja. Now, I probably want to get your thoughts, Mo, because I'm a bit on the fence here, but I'm actually of the view that you dropped Kawaja. Reason being that, I mean, Marcus Harris scored 1,188 runs in Shield cricket last year. He's the in-form opener in the Australian domestic scene. Um, average is 32 at test level, not as much as you'd like, but, I mean, he did look promising against the Indians last summer and probably needs to be given an opportunity, especially with the likes of Warner sort of being on the periphery of selection. Whereas you look at Kawaja, I mean, he scored less than 100 runs in uh, five innings. And besides, uh, he's, I mean, in Australia, he's, another, he's like David Warner. In Australia, he's probably one of your first pick. But outside of Australia, he's just, he just hasn't delivered. And I can't ever recall him scoring. Another one who can, has scored 100 in an Ashes test on British soil. So from my perspective... I think if I was making the call, I would drop Kawaja. Yeah, mate. And, you know, you talk about the sort of the number three batting position, which is, you know, one of the most coveted and usually reserved to some of your best test batsmen. I think I agree, mate. I think he needs to be dropped, uh, unfortunately. He's just not bringing enough, uh, you know, to the side. He's had a couple of promising starts, but never really been able to consolidate and really, you know, stay the course and, and bat out a day like he did in Dubai against Pakistan. I thought that was one of his best innings um, oh. in that test series. And it was much required after everything that happened in South Africa really sort of gave us a lot of belief back into the team. And I feel like he's almost riding the wave 
uh, from that test match still and, yeah. and living off of that a little bit without having uh, produced much since then. So he's had his innings, I think he's had you know three tests to show us what he can do in, in England and really a lot of false starts. Uh, I think there's a 30 and a couple of 20s there, but too many single digits for mine. And uh, he's just not reading the ball well, I think. I mean, a lot of his dismissals are soft, you know, again, with the Stuart Stuart Broad and and even other other bowlers are are getting the the better of him, so I reckon drop him. Um, Steve Smith and Lubbershane there that they're in really good nick, and I think they'll be great for us in the three and four spot. Hopefully Harris can consolidate a bit after Bancroft's out of the side as well. So just as, I don't overall Nathan, I just don't see the um the batting in our lineup. You know, like Matthew Wade, he sort of promises a bit, but then not too much. He doesn't even wicket keep now, does he? No, he doesn't, no. He doesn't, right? So I don't know what he's given us. You know, Tim Payne obviously does the wicket-keeping, and he's another one who's struggling for form uh, as well, right? And if he's in for his wicket-keeping, does he give you that much of a replacement over Wade in wicket-keeping that you still we still have him in the side? I mean, he is our captain, so maybe that's the main reason, but I just don't see any firepower, mate. Outside of Smith, and now that um, Minus is in a bit of form, I'm not sure who can actually stick around and support them. Well, having had a look at it, I mean, Matthew Wade did score 100 in the first test in the second innings, minus Jimmy Anderson. So, And again, he's probably in the school of Marcus Harris where he did uh, score a ton of runs at Shield Creek. I think he was the second or third highest run scorer. So, I mean, they have rewarded him for a ton of work. Plus, he has had big scores in the tour matches as well while on the on tour. So... I can see from a number six perspective, I think his form in the last probably two years has probably warranted him being a batsman in his own right. Um, look, Tra- Travis Head had a sort of inning-saving knock at Lords, so, sort of uh, scored a good solid 40. But look, I think probably for the last 10 years, batting in this country has just sort of gone to the shit, to be honest, if you ask me. I just look at it and I just think it comes back to sort of the techniques. It's just not susceptible to good quality swing bowling. Um, and some say it's got to do with the way the pitches are produced in Australia, which aren't allowing our players to be exposed to good swing bowling. I mean, besides the Gabba, um, you don't really uh, see many venues now that will have that genuine swing. I mean, having had a look at the side on the tour, I mean... Curtis, Curtis Patterson was batting at number six in the last test series against Sri Lanka. Admittedly, anyone could have scored runs in that series. I thought he was stiff to get dropped, but I think I think the fact that they're grooming Travis Head to be the next captain of the Australian cricket team probably means that I think the six that are there now are largely might only be one or two changes. Yeah, mate, absolutely. And um, you know, just just to be fair, I guess. The on on the flip side of things, Ben Stokes, right, and and we'll come to the some of the umpiring um in a second, but geez, that was a good innings in the third test, wasn't it? I mean, when you consider that they got bowled out for sixty seven, and again back to the point of the uh, batting and how exposed it is, we had an opportunity to really sort of put our foot on the gas and really build a score that you couldn't reach. That the best they could do was actually you know try to survive for a draw. But again, we just couldn't, um, you know, stick around long enough. And then uh, you give them a score that they can chase. And kudos to them. They sort of held a couple of partnerships together. But really, 
Ben Stokes and the way he played, I think, you know, in his first 80 or 90 runs, uh, 80 or 90 balls, sorry, he barely had um, 10 runs, I think. And then after that, he was just smashing it left, right and center, fours and sixes, playing great um, batting shots. Obviously, you have to be in in good form and and have the belief in yourself to do that. But how did you think our bowlers went really during that time? I felt that they sort of succumbed to the pressure and started feeling, you know, uh, you know, all eyes on, hey, are you going to finish this? Are you going to finish this off? And then I think that found itself into the field with the with the you know how Nathan Lyon missed that ball for the run out just absolutely yeah. defies me. And then a few drops in the field. How did you find that Ben Stokes inning and was it um, sort of facilitated by the Aussies going a bit into their shell and, and uh, sort of bowling a bit loosely, really? Look, I think you're right. I think the first 80-odd balls, he had only made 17 runs and they were very scratchy runs. Um, they weren't by any stretch of the means. It was, it was largely survival for Ben Stokes. Um, I actually think part of the, some credit actually has to go to Johnny Bairstow because he did show that positive intent before lunch on day four, which meant that the Aussies' line and length suddenly went from being fairly consistent in bowling and partnerships to just sort of fairly loose. Like, I found their line and length was fairly poor and they offered opportunities to be able to slash outside off stuff and go through the slip cordon. And I think from Bairstow's positive intent, that then allowed Stokes to get into the game because... I mean, he copped that absolute ripping bouncer from Paddy Cummins where he lost the uh, the neck uh, part of the helmet. And he was looking very timid there. But I think once Bearstay sort of uh, upped, upped his game a little bit, it sort of got Stokes out of his shell. And then I think when he sort of got, when they got to nine down, he's just probably thought, you know what, we've got to die wondering here. And I think just that belief that was generated really further exacerbated the problem with the uh, Four line and length that was uh, bowled by the Australians. Yeah, mate. And you know, did he make the most of it ever? Right, just uh, you know, an innings for the ages, really. You know, you got to put it up there. I reckon with the, I don't know, top five Ashes innings. Um, well, talking, reading the English press, I mean, they're comparing it to the efforts of uh, Flintoff in '05 and uh, Ian Botham. The miracle at Headingley in 1981s. In terms of um, finding a result, I, I can't think of too many more off the top of my head. I mean, I'd have to probably dig into the archive. On the, on the surface, yeah, that's probably a top five knock I've seen in Ashes cricket in my time. Absolutely, mate. I completely agree. And look, we we cannot we cannot talk about the Ashes and not talk about the shocking umpiring over those three tests. And this is not sort of limited to test three and that shocking decision at the end there this has been a pattern from the first test even when Alim Dar uh, was umpiring um at, you know at, at the time who was he with I think James Joel Wilson right who's who's had the shocker I think he's had eight decisions overturned Nathan and even though they changed uh, umpires from Alim Dar to Chris Gaffney and even he's had his errors now the the ICC have uh, changed umpires for the fourth and fifth test with Erasmus and Palia Guruj coming in. I think Erasmus from South Africa and Palia yes, Guruj is Sri Lankan. Mate, I'm not sure it's going to make much of a difference, Nathan, because this is my view uh, on all of this. I think the advent of, of using VAR and all of these reviews across a lot of sports have really taken the confidence away from 
referees, umpires, officials from making decisions in that split second that they're used to making. In the back of their head, it's always now, am I going to get this wrong? What are they going to say when it happens? And they sort of, uh, I think, crumbling to the pressure of of knowing that every time they make a decision which is marginal, uh, someone's going to review it. So they've got to be on the on the safer side in some instances. But also, there were some sort of, I would think, are clear misses that would have never been missed in previous times, like, uh, you know, a ball missing the bat and, and sort of clipping clipping the pants and going through, uh, you know, some edges that weren't picked up. And and that's where my view is. I, I'm hoping it improves, but I think unless the mindset of the umpire is one of, I'm going to make the decision and sort of be very confident in it um, and trust my experience. These guys have been around for 20 plus years. I mean, growing up, all I remember is Alim Da and Erasmus um, umpiring. I don't know about you, Nathan, but that they, they sort of come to mind uh, a fair bit. And mate, trust yourself. You've been doing this forever. You, you know, you, you're, you're seasoned. You know what you're seeing. If they have the mindset to trust themselves and know that VAR is only there as backup, I think they'll do well. But if you're always thinking that someone's going to go back to VAR to challenge your decision and then you're going to err on the side of caution and you're going to get it wrong most times, I don't think they're going to get better outcomes. Yeah, look, I think there's probably two points that sort of I can raise with that. Um, I know Michael Vaughan made a valid point in, with the Nathan Lyon decision. Should he have used a bit of common sense and thought, well, do I give it out knowing that England have a review and Ben Stace would definitely review that? I mean, that's one school of thought where there's probably an element of uh, common sense that wasn't used there. And then the second point is um, with the... Obviously, what's happened in the past with the poor umpiring, especially in the subcontinent, it's meant that umpires from their, the respective countries can't umpire. I mean, you've got Paul Rifle and Simon Towful, two of the best umpires in the world, can never umpire an Australian test match because of some of the stuff that happened in places like Pakistan and India and all these places, which meant that we're really robbing ourselves of the best uh, best referees, the best umpires. So with uh, with the DHS that's in play now, I mean, can we look at potentially having umpires from the, the home countries now umpiring because there is a greater scrutiny on them and there is a fallback for the visiting team to be able to utilise that and say, no, that was a blatantly wrong call. But I do agree that I think the umpires generally are doubting themselves. I mean, they are the best in the world. They have they have done it for a long time, and I think they just need to yeah back their judgment a bit more. And um, the D the DRS was brought in for the howler, and I think that it's just how I know I I can't recall an Ashes series having so such bad umpiring for both teams. If if we're being honest, I don't think that will ever change. I mean, I look at every other sport, Nathan, even, you know, uh, you know, football, rugby, uh, they usually don't put uh, sort of referees or umpires from your home country in that. And, and for obvious reasons, I mean, I think unless someone's got into an umpire, I think they always try to do their best job and be fair about it. But like you said, even if you get one uh, decision wrong, people will always think that maybe you there was an influence in it that because they're from the same country. Uh, so well, one thing I will say though, yeah. Mo, one thing I will say though is with cricket, like the umpire is has more influence in regards to 
uh, you know, that result. I mean, with, say, the football now, at least with the penalty box, you've got VAR, whereas with cricket, they're ultimately making a decision that's going to impact on are they in or they out. Obviously, with uh, football, there's going to be free kicks in all different parts of the pitch, which doesn't necessarily influence the score. With cricket, it's very specific, the role of the umpire, and if they do make an error, there is the DRS to be able to counteract that. So, I mean, I see your point in regards to like with the, those codes, but with cricket, it is such the umpire has more influence than any other sport in regards to that. That's why I'm a big believer that let's get the best umpires in and ensure that the best is, the decisions are being made. They will be held accountable accordingly if. Uh, there could be many options in regards to penalisation. Yeah, mate. Look, it definitely needs to be looked at and maybe, I don't know, more training, uh, better better selections. But definitely, I don't think I don't think it's a good look when you have that many errors um, in, in a single test. What's going to happen next, mate? Test 4 starts um, on Wednesday next week, September 4th. What's your view? What's the outcome going to be? Look, again, I think it really depends on who wins the toss. I mean, the, the thing with England is there's so many um, variables that come into play. Is there going to be cloud cover? Is there going to be grass on pitch? I think with the tour match starting tonight, Australian time in, against Derbyshire, I think we're going to sort of see, well, who are going to be the contenders for the fourth test? Um, look, I generally think this is a 50-50 test. Having been to the UK and watched a test match, I'd back us to win at the Oval because the pitch there tends to be flatter and more conducive for good batting. We have won the last two tests at the Oval, so I'd be confident that with the conditions being right and the toss going our way that we could win at the Oval. But, yeah, I, I think we're going to have our work cut out. Even though I did say it was a 50-50 game, I do think we're going to have our work cut out at Old Trafford. Um, you know, it is sort of known for being you know, a good deck to bowl on, and um, I don't know if we're going to be able to counteract the swing, especially if uh, Jimmy Anderson comes back into the team. Yeah, it's going to be very tough. Like you said, Jimmy, if Jimmy Anderson's back in, obviously Steve Smith, and <laughs> maybe we're putting too much on his shoulders, but he, he is our saviour really um come to think of it just in terms of consistency and and how everyone's been going i just hope someone sticks around with him and we're just switched on right i think we made some mistakes in the field that uh, we don't usually make and and we need to we need to be able to play um aussie cricket i mean we've always prided ourselves on being switched on fielding better than any other test team and we need to bring that. Look, uh, watch this space here. Look, it's been an exciting Ashes series, actually. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully we can we can get up. Switching gears now, and Western United have uh, been taking, you know, slow steps towards their inaugural A-League season. And a few weeks back, Nathan, they had their first uh, friendly, so the first official game uh, as a club. I think they had just over 3,000 people in attendance at uh, to that game, and you were one of them. Uh, mate, just talk oh, us yes, through so... your, your experience and general impressions, and, and what do we what can we expect out of United? Yeah, so I went I went last Thursday night to uh, Caroline Springs in the outer western suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, they played George, uh, Caroline Springs' George Cross. Uh, for some of our older listeners, they were the old sunshine, George Cross, who played in the NSL in 1989. They had a convincing 4-0 win. I mean, can't take too much out of it in the sense they're a third-tier club. So 
largely that was to be expected with some of the big names that Western United have got. But in terms of just the experience, I mean, yeah, there were a lot of interested onlookers. Um, many people affiliated with Western Suburbs uh, football clubs across uh, the Western Suburbs of Melbourne. So there were a lot of interested onlookers in regards to the formation that they played. They looked to have played with a 3-5-2, sort of using uh, the likes of Josh Risden and Connor Payne as wing-backs, so sort of really playing that sort of up-tempo style. Um, they had they were really looking to play attacking, and not sort of reckless, but sort of providing forward momentum and not as much of that playing with the back. But, I mean, they would knock it around, but not once they crossed the halfway line. Um, they played some very dynamic football and they were always on the move. So I think... I think it'd be a great first hit out for them, and I think they could. I I look at the list on paper and having seen the first sort of the signs of how they want to play, I'd be very disappointed if they don't make the six this year. I mean, they do have some esteemed players like getting to see the likes of Panagiotis Kone and Alessandro Diamante, both Serie A uh, stalwarts, and had played over twenty times for their respective countries. Um, they're the ones that are going to be pulling the strings and really sort of playing with the playmaker role. Um, I've seen a couple, there were a couple of young lads that really stood out for me for Western United. Uh, young Valentino Yule, who scored the first goal for, in Western United's uh, history. He's a very lively young winger from uh, Bentley Greens who was signed from the yeah, local MPL comp this year. I really think he's a chance to start in the first game. He provides plenty of energy and he's always on the move. And another young lad, an ex-City uh, youth player, Josh Cavallo, he looked, he looked really promising in my liking. Uh, he, had a very, he had a very mean left boot. And um, I really think that with a bit of time and effort, I think he could be one for, for Western United. Sounds very exciting, mate. And how has the, the uptake been in terms of uh, memberships and engagement from the community? Are we... You know, are we starting to build a bit of a a bit of a backing there, and and people excited uh, to watch the team next season? Look, I think I think the part of the problem is I think it's sort of that really early days at the moment. Like I don't look at the membership numbers, and they've signed about eleven hundred members. Uh, membership's only been available for about a week and a half, two weeks now. So, um, so it's a bit slow on the uptake in the early days. But I think one thing that they are doing really well is engaging with a lot of the. Uh, community clubs. I think they said there's 91 community clubs in the western suburbs of Melbourne and the western region of Victoria, so out towards Geelong, Ballarat. So they're really sort of trying to get in at the grassroots level and really work with the community clubs in order to do that. Um, I think largely what will come of it is when the season starts, I think you'll really sort of start to see you know more people take it up. But look, I think they're making the right noises. They've got great intentions, but I think it's just a bit too early just to sort of see how big it's it's going to be. I mean, I'm not connected at community football level in the West Suburbs of Melbourne, so I'm sort of not uh, involved in that sense. But one thing that I have done is they've really engaged with a lot of the local high schools. So hopefully, um, you know, you'll be able to get the next generation of kids who want to follow Western United. Absolutely, mate. And, of course, they play their third friendly uh, Tuesday, September 3rd. So they're playing North Geelong Warriors in Melton. So it's good, you know, just 
play friendly is get the players chemistry to build and uh, just go out in the community right and and get a bit of uh, support and if you remember Nathan when we spoke about Western United many months ago I, I was in a bit of a dilemma about uh, you know if I should uh, start supporting them or, or stick to victory and, and I've made my decision mate yeah yeah I'll be um I'll, I'll be switching allegiances to Western United yeah, that's um, brilliant. I, I like the, yeah. I like the sound of that <laughs> yeah I think it's you know it's really interesting and, and we talk about this a lot in footy Nate, given that we both grew up in the Western suburbs and, and sort of in any other country, and if you want to compare it to England, for example, you grew up in a certain area, you're usually supporting the team in that area. So in our case, it would have been the Western Bulldogs, right? But as both yeah. you and I know, you know, for us and most of our friends who are mad footy fans and, and are members of their respective clubs, not very many actually support the Western Bulldogs because, you know what, if they did, that'd be the biggest club in the land, uh, Western Bulldogs. If, if just the people in that Western corridor of Melbourne actually supported the team in their geography, they'd be easily the biggest club, I think. Uh, but, you know, given given allegiances are hereditary in, in our world and the sort of you, you tend to stick to your family's team, that hasn't happened. I'm hoping it happens with Western United. I'm hoping a lot of people at West actually um, go to the team and uh, support it from an early age and grow up with it and, and you know, end up becoming members and build it into a powerhouse. And uh, the other reason, Nathan, is, of course, it's got the word United um, in, in the <laughs> yeah, team I name. Say that. I knew there was a catch to it. <laughs> and, you know, that, that always has a nice ring to it. And uh, given how poorly... Manchester United have been going. Um, I'm hoping that this Western United team can make up for some of it over the next uh, few seasons. So all, all the best for Western United. Hopefully they, they make a good showing in the upcoming A-League, and I'm sure we'll talk about them a lot more as you start going to games in the new season. Yeah, most definitely. I'm looking forward to the first home game on the 19th of October against Perth Glory at uh, Geelong Stadium. Yeah, look, I think... I think some of the sentiment that I'm hearing is that they are waiting for the new stadium to be built in Tarnate in season three. So, yeah, I, think, I mean, ultimately, I think the owners of the club originally said that they wanted to come in before the Maca- after the Macarthur Rams, but I think because uh, Western Sydney Wanderers had a bit of a sook, um, it meant that it was pretty much well, you either come in now or you don't come in at all. So. I mean, beggars can't be choosers, uh, especially with all the stuff that's going to happen with the new independent A-League. It was just the, the perfect opportunity to come in. No, absolutely, mate. Look, you've got to come in. That's fine. Uh, two or three seasons is not much in the scheme of things, and I still think they can lay a great foundation, even as they're sort of alternating games. Because I think they'll be playing in Ballarat as well. Am, am I wrong, Nathan? Uh, yeah, they're going to play four games at Mars Stadium. So originally, I think the idea was I wanted to play at Mooreshead, which is a belt, is which is a rectangular football uh, uh, focused stadium. But I think the broadcasters indicated that the lighting wasn't good enough, and I think it only holds about two or three thousand. I mean, you can put uh, um, temporary seating in, but then that becomes a very costly exercise. Whereas with Mars Stadium, they've got the broad cast facilities already there they got the lights and um yeah because it holds about 10 or 11 pounds and they should be able to get some good crowds yep now look exciting times uh nathan yep who's winning the Brownlow? oh geez i mean there's any number of players this year i think it's going to be one of the most open fields this year you could probably blanket over about nine or ten look if i had to pick one i'd probably say lucky neil what he's been able to do in um, for Brisbane this year, he's been he's been unbelievable. He's just the his ability to accumulate position possessions, 
win the ball in tight, do it on the outside, and just to be able to sort of compliment the likes of Dane Zorko and Co. It's just been a breath of fresh air. So if I had to pick one, I'd probably say Lucky Neil. How about yourself? I have to say I agree, mate. I think, look, Brisbane, you should be here to see the the energy and the vibe. That bandwagon is well and truly full. <laughs> and there is no space for anyone on that bus to, to the Gabba, especially, um, you know, this coming weekend uh, as the Lions play the Tigers, which I'm hoping is going to be a, a, a ripper game. And we'll come to that in a second. But yeah, I think Brisbane have had great contributions from a lot of players uh, this year. And... Lockie Neal has definitely sort of justified um, that trade and he's sort of, he's taken his game to another level. And it's interesting because disposal wise, if you look at his averages, it's not that different. I mean, he's up, you know, like one disposal a game, but I just feel his impact on the game has, has risen so much. And he's just been able to play a great role for that team and, and just help, you know, help them going forward. He's been able to showcase his skill um, as well, and you know, I think this this day and age, it's a lot more like the the Brownlow winner. Unless you've had a super exceptional season, you're not going to win it if your team hasn't won sort of a minimum number of games. I mean, back in the day, there used to be a lot of St Kilda players winning Brownlows, even though the team was you know consistently in the wooden spoon conversation. Um, but I feel like this day and age that you you sort of have to have ten, eleven wins on the board for you to. Generally speaking, there's always exceptions, of course, but for you to sort of be in that Brownlow uh, conversation and, you know, given Brisbane's season and given where they are on the ladder, I think Lockie Neal is, is a favourite for mine. And uh, maybe Paddy, Paddy Dangerfield is always up there. Yeah, well, I mean, Paddy Dangerfield will come home. He'll come home late. His last yeah. month of football has been incredible. Um, I mean, to back up your point, I mean, Paddy Cripps, you know, he, he's an absolute genius of a footballer. I think if he, if Carlton had won more games early on mm. in the BT train era, I think, um, I I think the Charlie would be coming home to uh, Princess Park. I I agree, mate. I there's there's also a few games early in the season that we just we lost. They were really close games, so maybe he'll poll the odd vote here or there, but he had a bit of a slower end to the season as well. Like, I mean, against Geelong, he was amazing. 30-something touches, 20 contested, and he kicked a goal. Um, so he might even get a vote for that one. But there were a few games in there where he just he he just wasn't in our best, even though we were winning, which is fantastic for us, right? That we're actually winning without Paddy having to carry the load like he was earlier in the season. So that's a good sign for mine from a team standpoint. Just doesn't really... Serve Lockie when it, uh, serve Paddy. Sorry, when it comes to uh, the Brownlow, um, but yeah, look, watch out. I think next season, uh, you know, add another five wins uh, to that team, and I think definitely Cripps will be in the conversation uh, to win it. Oh, definitely, quick fire, mate. Uh, round one of the finals next week, or you know, coming up in a few days. Geelong Collingwood, who you got? Jeez, oh, you put me on the spot here, mate. I mean, you know me. I like to. Uh be able to have a look at the teams and all that. But look, with just based on exposed form, I'd probably say the Cats. Yep, I agree, mate. I reckon the Cats will win and uh, go straight to the prelim. West Coast Essendon? I'd probably say the Eagles. Yeah, I reckon the Eagles too strong, Essendon to be eliminated. Also because we just can't stand Essendon fans, so we want them to lose yeah, anyway. that's true. I can't stand England. <laughs> <laughs> Really interesting one, given the form the doggies are in, even though it's away, 
but we saw what they did to the Giants a couple of rounds ago when they played them in Sydney. Giants versus the Bulldogs, who have you got? This is probably the hardest one because, I mm. mean, to be fair, the Giants, I think, led at half time in that game and did have the likes of Cameron. I don't, I don't know. I think Cameron wasn't playing that game from memory. But I think, look, at this point in time, the Dogs will have uh, fond memories of uh, 2016 playing at that stadium. Um, they knocked them off a couple of weeks ago. So I'd have to think, based on, unless there's a significant change to the two lineups, I'd have to say the Doggies. I'm with you, mate. I think the Bulldogs should win this just, you know, based on form, based on personnel. Uh, and they're just playing really good footy. They've been blowing teams out in terms of like this, this scoring. They're moving the ball really well. Bontempelli is in rare nick. So I, I can't see why I would uh, tip against the doggies at this stage. And finally, Lions versus Richmond up here at the at the Gabba. I'm going to have to go to the Lions. I think um, they, they didn't lose any friends on Sunday afternoon at the MCG. I mean, that third quarter, they played some incredible football. Um Likes of Zorko, Neil, even Mitch Robertson, the, the human wrecking ball. He, uh, he really sort of, <laughs> Mitch really sort of, I mean, your old boy from Carlton, <laughs> you know, like they really took it up to and really looked like they hurt them. Um, I mean, look, it's Richmond at the MCG, they're a formidable team. I actually think Richmond will still make the grand final, but they'll have to go the long way about it because their form outside of uh, Victoria hasn't been very good the last couple of years. But just the way they play on the MCG, they're just playing some incredible football at the moment. So I still think Richmond could make the grand final, but I think they're going to have to go the long way this time. Yeah, it's probably where we differ, mate. Uh, just on that last one, I, I think Richmond will win that game. My view is just the the lights might be a bit too bright for the Lions, uh, given the expectations, and and I potentially they'll they'll lose that game, uh, but then get to host uh, another final and and win their way into a prelim. Uh, yeah, the I think way. one thing I will say, I think one thing I will say though is you got to look at it as well. Having played in front of over seventy five thousand MCG, like. They won a lot of admirers out of that game, and I think they'll be good for that, um, good for the run. Um, I haven't had a look at the long-term weather forecast for Brisbane next week, but if it's anything like the Geelong game, I mean, you're going to have warmer temperatures. I mean, it hasn't been that warm in Melbourne this winter, so <laughs> that element too. And I mean, having had a look at Richmond's form outside of Victoria, I think besides, I mean, given the Gold Coast hiding, I mean, Geez, I mean, uh, a strong VFL side would give them a run for their money at the moment. You know, like they haven't done too well outside of Victoria. So that's sort of where my thinking is with uh, the Lions. But that's not to say, I think, I still think Richmond can win the flag. It just, because the premierships are decided in Victoria, that's where it is in the favour of the Tigers. Yep. Now look, you make a fair point. I just think Dustin Martin and, and Basha Hooley have been in great form, actually, for, for the Tigers, playing some of the best footy of his career, Basha. So he's been you know, very consistent for them off half-back. And look, I'm just hoping it's a cracker. And uh, the Lions, uh, I'd, I'd love it if they win. I mean, do you imagine the buzz around here if, if they actually, if the Lions pull this off and, and make the uh, prelim? It'd be great for Queensland football, I think. Um 
you know, like it's sort of been sort of battered from pillar to post in recent years. But I think um, you've got to look at the likes of what uh, Chris Fagan has done. Now, even you know, the likes of David Noble coming from Adelaide, I mean, there's some un, unsung heroes that have really sort of changed the environment. I mean, they've adopted a recruiting strategy based on geography and friendships. It sounds very simple, but, you know, they've sort of been able to, you know, they've come a long way from the likes of, you know, Elliot Yo, Jared Polek, uh, leaving. I imagine you throw guys like that into the Lions lineup. I mean, geez, you know. They could do anything, but I think these mechanisms that they've put in place to improve the club, it's testament to the way they're run at the football club. It's been very impressive. Yeah, look, they've been fantastic and looking forward to a great final series. Thanks for your time, mate. No worries, mate. Glad uh, you uh, got me on for another run. I thought I was, uh, thought I might not have got another Guernsey, <laughs> but uh, always we, we, um, appreciate it. Say- so much to discuss. We we need to talk about North Melbourne's season, how Spurs have started, um, deep dive into the AFL uh, in and of itself. Oh, this is so much to talk about. It's just that the cricket, um, there's just too much happening in the cricket uh, for us not to cover it as much as we did. Uh, that's understandable, mate. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a, I said it is a busy time of the year. Um, yeah, you've got your AFL finals, your NRL finals, uh, and Rugby World Cup starting soon. Yes. Um, US Open's on. US, I mean. Apparently. Yes, I, didn't even, I must admit, I didn't even know it was on. Mate, I, I don't understand, and I put it up on, on the Facebook page. It's got to be one of the worst marketed events in the world, surely, given the size of it and, and the span of the game and how popular it is in parts. I had no idea it was starting until after the first round of matches had actually started. Yeah, I think the problem with the US does, well, you've got to think, you've got the likes of the Cincinnati Masters, the Indian Wales. Now, she's got big ticket sort of Masters 500, Masters 1000 events that it's not like in, say, Australia and the UK, especially where tennis is confined pretty much to a month a year where they have to sort of milk it. I mean, largely attributable to sort of weather and all that. But, uh, yeah, I, I must admit, uh, you know, I... And, and this is coming from a bloke who does play tennis at a local level. I've <laughs> completely missed it. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And I sort of, you know, as, as you would know in our listeners, I, I follow a fair bit of sports and I even fell off my radar. So, you know, that, that tells you something. Even with all the pages I follow, I didn't see much of the tennis. But anyway, thanks again, mate. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Leave us your comments and your feedback. And we will chat to you very soon.